Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Brooke Andrew is an interdisciplinary artist who examines dominant narratives often relating to colonialism and modernist histories. He's also the artistic director of the 22nd Biennale of Sydney, Nidden and Nidden Nam. Brooke, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Hey there, Yama. <laughs> Before we talk about Nidden Nam, let's talk a, a little bit about the Biennale of Sydney, of Nidden. It ran up until just a couple of months ago, right? Up until October. It was peak COVID times, but it didn't necessarily change too much of what was going on. Tell me a little bit about how it all ran. Yeah, well, I mean, we were so lucky because we were open for a few weeks and there's so many artists from around the world and it was a real buzz. I mean, you know, it was First Nations philosophically led and artist led. So everything from grassroots up was kind of really the driving force, which really turned the kind of traditional structure of the Biennale on its head, which is amazing. And it really kind of linked a lot of artists. And so when COVID hit, people were lucky enough to come together, uh, especially for Abbequad, which is a First Nations conference that we, an international conference that we worked with, Wanda Nunnabush from Canada, from the Art Gallery in Ontario. And so when COVID did hit, I mean, we were lucky enough that everything was solid. You know, people knew each other. There was a lot of documentation happening. And the Biennale team themselves had off to them. I mean, they just put everything online. So I'd have to say it's probably one of the most documented, if not the most documented, Biennales online. It's amazing because you mentioned that it was like Indigenous centred. And I think a lot of the themes that come out of the work of Indigenous people around the world does relate to some extent with some of the stuff that's coming out of the experiences of COVID at the moment, right? When people talk about feeling displaced or feeling like they're not in control and and feeling like they are being told what to do and feelings of, you know, maybe now there is a bit of a turning point and reimagining and imagining what a future might look like. So it feels like some of the work, um, I wasn't able to see Nidden in Sydney, but it feels like some of the work could have really spoken to these times. Yeah, I mean, I think those kind of anxieties and, and those kind of the urgent issues around the environment, but also the way in which First Nations cultures really have a manifestation that's quite different to the dominant culture. I mean, in saying that too, it wasn't all just First Nations artists, but it was this really important reflect on the complexities of what and how we see ourselves in the world. But I mean, you know, I must say though that COVID has also been really nourishing for some people as well, even though it's devastating for, for many people because a lot of people also have anxieties or they experience racism or transphobia. Uh, you know, there are a lot of trans and people of colour and queer artists in the Biennale and we aimed at setting it up to be this safe place as well. So I think that, yeah, those urgencies around the environment and the fires that happened in Australia and then in Brazil really brought Mm -hmm. the experiences internationally together. But, yeah, it could create this really solid platform. And as many people say, it's the Biennale that just keeps giving. You mentioned that, you know, Nidden kind of flipped this concept of the Biennale to some extent on its head. And I was texting with a friend yesterday and told her I would be speaking with you this morning. For listeners, that was Samira, who often (laughs) fills in on this show and has her own show on Triple R. 
And she went back to Sydney to see family at some point during the big kind of Melbourne lockdowns. And she was fortunate enough to see some exhibitions and the closing as well. And her question, this is her question because I wasn't there. Her question is, you engaged with Indigenous and Black work from countries that might not be regularly curated in Australia, like Haiti and Ghana and Brazil. And so her question is, what is your process when it comes to curating something that is so vastly different to what we see in this country? Yeah, I mean, it's a really great question. It's something that I really focused on from the beginning. So, I mean, I am an artist and a scholar. I'm not a curator. And that was the, the gift of this gig. I mean, it's artistic director, so I could really kind of embellish that however I wanted to. But it was very important for me to visit Haiti first. I mean, it was the first country that freed itself from slavery. There was a huge revolt. Yet, hundreds of years later, they're still being punished for that revolt. And I think it's such deep-seated um, racism within the West. Um, but this is a kind of a phenomenon that happens right across the world, Asia Pacific. If we look at, uh, we had a huge delegation from Taiwan of Indigenous Taiwanese curators and artists who were so blown away by the solidarity. But it's really interesting that she mentioned this thing about Brazil, for example, because Jota Mombasa, who's one of the artists from Brazil, said, Brooke, I've never been in in an exhibition before where there's been any other Brazilian Afro-Indigenous artist, let alone five. And, you know, it's not that I was sitting back counting. It's just that I was very lucky uh, to go to Brazil, uh, meet with Maria Teresa Alves, who's an Indigenous Brazilian artist, and then she connected me to other people, and then Lola Amira, who's a Zulu artist from South Africa, also put me in contact with people. So there was this kind of, you know, we just used our own kind of ways of connecting with people, which is not through the kind of usual eye of Western popular art art market. It's not to say that I, of course, didn't have artists who are celebrated within that that, um, scene, like Arthur Jaffa, Uma Baba. Um, you know, Arthur Jeff is from America, from the United States and Huma Baba is Pakistani based in the United States. Um, but yeah, it was very important to create, to kind of really shine a light on, on many of the shadow, so-called shadow areas that mm. that dominant culture doesn't see. The Biennale Nidden in, in Sydney didn't necessarily, you know, folks who live in Sydney or in the area or whose borders were not completely closed <laughs> didn't necessarily yeah. become affected by COVID. But for us here in Melbourne, like I had plans to come up and check it out and I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And so for those who didn't manage to see it in Melbourne, just kind of looking at, at it through Instagram stories and through the website and through texts from friends and stuff, for me it was such a big deal because often as someone who isn't an artist but as someone who enjoys art, so much and enjoys art by black, indigenous, people of colour so much. It often isn't curated in this country in the ways that we feel like we are seen. So I think that, you know, oftentimes we're relegated to the corner or in the kind of like yeah. dimly lit room or whatever it might be. And Nidin, my friend who was texting me, was like it was it was game changing to her. Um, and so that is such a that's that's such a big and bold statement to be made here in Australia for an institution like the Biennale. Yeah, it is. I hope that it continues to evolve, the Biennale, because Biennales have these legacies that are very much linked to the colonial legacies of mm. the great exhibitions of people may or may not know about the Garden Palace in the British early British times in Sydney that was at Botanical Gardens. I mean, even the Venice Biennale mm-hmm. is based on these kind of colonial expositions which are incredibly demeaning to many uh, colonised or other cultures that were 
collected in inverted commas from, you know, powerful Western nations. But I must say that, you know, people like Nikki Cumston and the Art Gallery of South Australia have been doing Tananti, which is like a, a national indigenous art festival exhibition for many years now. And also the Asia Pacific Triennial at Queensland Art Gallery of Modern Art have been really embedded themselves in, in these stories as well. But yeah, I mean, on the international platform within the Biennale sector, this is I think I've had lots of really positive responses by even what you're saying, and I'm really so happy for the artists and the collectives and the communities to be involved in that. And so there's like a little kind of version of it, a version of it that is all online because, yes, we're still in Melbourne, that's come to Melbourne, come to Akka. It's called Nam. Tell me what the focus of Nam is. Well, I mean, Max Delaney and, um, and and Annika, who's the curator there, contacted me and said, look, we, you know, they came out for the opening and that. they were just so blown away by it all. Um, there was a great cohort, even Simon Maven from the National Gallery of Victoria came up and Vicky McInnes from COVA at the VCA. And they just wanted a bit of that, a slice of it in Melbourne. And so we actually did plan an exhibition. It's actually up, <laughs> except unfortunately in Melbourne um, or Victoria, they're, well, they're opening up the, you know, people can go shopping and Myers and everything, but they can't go to a gallery yet, which I think now actually you can, but I mean, there was no lead up or like conversations. Mm-hmm. I think that galleries could have opened weeks ago. And I think it's really important for me to say this because it's often the arts that are left behind. I mean, people aren't going into the gallery and trying on clothes and touching everything. So I think that there's a real missed kind of opportunity for the cultural sector to, you know, really lift the vibes in, as you were saying before, getting people out of this kind of lockdown anxiety. But anyway, the wonderful thing about what Max and his crew have done is that they've now created this online um, film festival of all the the, kind of a a big selection of the films that are actually in there. And and this is great because normally when you document a Biennale, you just have still images or maybe a walkthrough of a space and so you'll have like, you know, a virtual reality or augmented reality experience or something. But to actually see the films and be part of this Mm -hmm. film festival is really great. And it's kicked off. So this week I encourage people to get online. So when you say encourage people to get online to see an art exhibition, <laughs> what does that look like? Because I was on the website yesterday, so I've kind of cheated and I'm sure a few people have already been <laughs> on there. But how does it actually work? How do people engage with it and what does it actually look like? Well, it's like an online film festival and I'm sure those film buffs out there will have dipped in and out of you know, what the film festival is these days. I mean, except you don't have to pay for it. So you just go to the ACA website and you click onto Niran Nam, Nam meaning Melbourne, of course, Niran meaning Edge, and you just click onto the films that you want to see. It's free. You, you know, you can. Some of the films are very short and only a few minutes long. Some of them are much longer. It's pretty easy, user friendly. And the best thing about it is you can sit at home with your mates or your friends or your family or by yourself and like no one's pattering in the background, if you know what I mean. Like if yeah. you go to a cinema, yeah. And Have often, as much popcorn as you want. Yeah, and, and of course, like when you go to exhibitions and there are these kind of film installations and they loop and you kind of miss a bit yeah, because of something. Absolutely. With this, you can actually rewind. It, which is something that my yeah. concentration levels are not very high. So I was able pause. to kind of scroll back, pause, <laughs> go, come back, not have to then watch the whole thing all over again to get to the end. So that is also a big, a big selling point. You also have an artist talk that's happening, an artist panel that's happening on Saturday. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm really excited about it. I mean, unfortunately, there's not enough 
of them, just because of time differences of Australia. But we'll be talking with James Taylor, Justin Shoulder and um, Soletti. And we'll just be really talking about their practice, talking about how important moving images. A lot of these artists use language or bend or twist kind of reality and transformative healing um, futuristic creative processes and this, the, some of those themes are very much part of, of Niren. We've used a lot of indigenous languages so even in the films you'll see everything from Cambodian language to Portuguese, got so many different languages, uh, Aboriginal languages so I think it's a really great opportunity to kind of get into the, into the heads and, and really share the kind of vast I would say and also very interdisciplinary practice of these artists they're not just video artists they're performance artists they're sculptors they work in their own communities that's awesome so much to talk about not enough time yeah <laughs> that's alright well if people want to hear more they can sign up it's Saturday 4pm you can jump on the ACCA website and you will find all the information there Brooke thank you so much for joining me this morning pleasure Brooke Andrew is an interdisciplinary artist who examines dominant narratives often relating to colonialism and modernist histories He's also the artistic director of the 22nd Biennale of Sydney, Nidan and Nidan Nam, which is coming out of Akka. You can check out Nidan Nam on the Akka website and register for the Artist Talk online too. I'm very excited to introduce Rosie Kalina, who is a visual artist and proud Wambuamba and Gudijmara woman. She specialises in makeup artistry with a large Instagram following at Rosie Kalina and works in fashion, editorial and live events. Rosie challenges the notion of what it means to be Aboriginal through fierce and decolonial imagery and by asserting herself as a sovereign woman. Rosie, is so nice to have you on the phone this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to hear your voice again. <laughs> It has been a minute and I always say this on this show but one thing that I love about presenting this show in particular is speaking to people that I know who I haven't been able to see or speak with for ages and just have a little bit of a catch up live on air with an audience. So yeah, yeah, that's what so we'll do. It's genuine. It's like we're all just like catching up on reality right now. A hundred percent. And I guess the first thing that I want to ask you about is how. I mean, COVID stuff is slowly starting to peel away somewhat. But how was that period for you with your work? Oh yeah, it was up and down. I think a lot of people can relate to having those moments of feeling super motivated and beast mode going into it and then the next week just I can't be bothered doing anything. I can barely get out of bed. So that was me. Like it was very much up and down. Spooky season kind of like got me inspired to, you know, do makeup looks again. But then before that I was kind of like in a little bit of a hiatus. Mm. So it's been up and down. I think it's about like listening to my body and just kind of being responsive to that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I guess with the industry that you work in, in makeup, it is, you know, that's associated and attached with like music and entertainment and, you know, events and functions and whatever. And when that is on hold, I think sometimes people forget how actually widespread that is for people. It's not just that a musician can't play a show anymore or do music videos anymore. There's so many people who work in that industry that also get impacted. Yeah, for sure. And... Yeah, it was it was kind of like, you know, because I love doing editorial looks mm-hmm. for shoots and everything like that, and there were so many lined up that had to get cancelled. But it was kind of like rolling with the punches. I've always been good with going with the flow and mm-hmm. just kind of adapting to the new normal. And, of course, like with the visual art that I do, that was super weird because I was right in the middle of doing Black the Future 3 at Fusco Art Centre, and 
we just had to pack up, like, literally in the middle of it. And I was curating it, and I had, like, biggest mob in um, painting a mural. And then I was like, ah, okay, everyone go home. <laughs> you know, we're in lockdown. So it was a, yeah, it was weird. And then, you know, I got to finish it just last week. So, yeah, it was, it was super weird, the whole process. Yeah. I've always wanted to ask you, Rosie, about, and, you know, I've, I mentioned this a bit to you before when we were off air. I've always kind of wondered about people that I know who have a kind of professional social media account that has a large following and what that yeah. experience is like. Because I guess the people in our kind of extended communities are super down to earth. They're super chill. Like mm. Melbourne is pretty chill. Um, and then there are people like yourself and musicians and people out there who have huge followings in the world. Yeah. I want to ask before we talk about what that experience is, when your prominence first grew, what yeah. kind of changed for you? Oh, my confidence definitely went up. It was not like I have a million followers, you know what I mean? But, you know, when I got up to a certain amount, it was kind of like no one in my family let me get a big head about it. Like it became kind of almost <laughs> like a joke. Like they were proud of me, but they were like, eh, you know, you're an influencer, like that, you know, just like just typical Corey's just like poking fun but being proud and loving him up at the same time. So it was kind of like that. It was like, oh, like it's, I've never like let it impact the way that I see myself as an artist because at the end of the day, it, it's a following. Like it, it makes me super happy that people appreciate my work, but at the end of the day, it's not everything. Mm-hmm. But it is a, it's a huge privilege for me to have a platform and it's not one that I take lightly, like, you know, and especially being Aboriginal and being on a platform like that, it kind of felt isolating at the start because we don't get like a manual or told like how to deal with like getting paid by brands or like, you know, PR and stuff like that. Because it all seems really exciting and it's like a whirlwind when, you know, brands reach out to me and I get attention from them. Like I would never think of those brands ever sending me free packages of makeup you know it's like it's surreal but that excitement you know I can get really wrapped up in and I kind of forget hey like actually you know a lot of this I actually should be getting paid for Mm -hmm. but no one ever like tells you how to do this It's, it's a lot like you know in the arts like you know with invoicing and all of that like it's it's kind of hard navigating that and I had to find other mob on Instagram as well to connect to which I felt like I had to really go out of my way to because it's like you know, I started it five years ago, and that's mm-hmm. when it got big, like five years ago. But then in the past year, I've just seen so much more. I, I don't know, maybe it's the Instagram algorithm getting it together, but <laughs> I've been able to access so many more new accounts of mob that I've I'd never seen before, you know, of artists and makeup artists and actors mm-hmm. and models, you know. So it's become like more of a global, not a global, more of just like a national, like, community. So it's... Yeah, it's changed a lot since I started, but yeah, that's that's kind of how it's it's been for me. Yeah. It is interesting because like influencing in inverted commas is like a full on industry, particularly in the US and in the kind of coastal cities and states in the US. It's such mm. it's such an industry and there are like you yeah. know, tutorials to get you to that point. You're totally right. It's kinda of like the arts here when you don't really have a sense of what to do, you know, you like yeah. it. You know, a lot of musicians who, who I get to speak with on this show are, you know, tell me that particularly when they started out, it was like, Oh, I love music and then they forgot that there was this whole other side 
which was, you know, PR, speaking to media, you know, negotiating Mm. pay, getting on festivals, being on a label, like all of these other elements that are beyond the the enjoyment of just making a song or something. Yeah, yeah. Like no one tells you this stuff. I think especially just, you know, in our community or just any person of colour, like I just feel like there's especially that big hurdle to get over um, or to get through because, you know, white influencers are, like, going to be the first to, like, you know, get a blue tick. Like I said, when I started five years ago, it was, like, they were the people that were seen as the face of Australia. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, and like you said before with, you know, the, like the US, like, that was, you know, most of my um, followers were from the UK or the US. So I found myself being like, hey, we exist here. You know, like <laughs> that was like a whole other thing too. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's also a bit of a catch-22 because you mentioned you can connect with people around the country and around the world. You can connect mm-hmm. with your people and people who have similar interests to you. But it can also be super toxic, right? Definitely. Has that been an experience of yours? Definitely. I mean, I used to get hate comments, but, you know, I, this sounds really toxic of me, but I was like, Loki excited because um, <laughs> because I was like, you know what? Hate comments mean that like you've gotten to the point where people start hating for no reason because you're doing the right thing. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, hundred percent. That's the way I see it. <laughs> so, I remember my first hate comment. I was like, "Mom, I got my first hate comment," and I was like, kind of excited about it because I thought it was funny, and I was, you know, I just don't take anything seriously like that. But it did start to get really annoying as it went on and became a bit frustrating because it kind of felt like they're forgetting that I'm a human mm-hmm. right now. It was a very weird feeling. So at the start, it was like, ah, this is a novelty to... Mm. And then, of course, outside of the direct comments, I think there's a big issue of comparing yourself mm. to other people's following or why hasn't this brand reached out to me? And da, da, da. It can get messy really quickly. And, yeah, it's... It's something that I kind of got to keep myself in check with yeah. and just just remind myself that, like, Instagram is a place that you show your best side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a powerful and good thing because, personally, I look at celebrities and, like, tabloids, like, growing up, right, and you see all those photos in magazines of, like, you know, taking photos of women when they're, like, off guard mm-hmm. and, you know, they get scrutinised by their figure or like they got a little tiny bit of cellulite and like they all go crazy and it's out of their control mm. and I'm not saying that everyone on Instagram is a celebrity but it's like we live in a day and age where like our photos are public and they're around and I think being able to like control our image is actually important as opposed to it being from someone else's lens but on the other side of that it's like people don't realize that like everybody's got face tune everybody's got <laughs> some sort of, like, something to look extra cute in the photos. So, and, and you know, so that's, that's the issue. It's kind of like I see it as both powerful and potentially um, dangerous for people's self-esteem. So I think it's self-awareness is, like, what you need. It's hard too because I actually spend some time speaking with my younger cousins, like young women, teenagers, about this Mm. kind of stuff and you want to say like, you know, I want you to feel empowered enough to be able to be who you want to be on these platforms but you also want to tell them that it's not everything and you also kind of also want to tell them that at the end of the day these platforms are kind of big business, right? They're not there to do anything for you specifically so maybe you can try and get as much out of it as possible 
Because if they just shut down, then you want to also still have your sense of self intact and all of that yeah, kind of stuff together. Definitely. Yeah, and I feel like in general, like social media or not, living in a capitalist society, mm. it's like romanticised to just like work, 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 not sleep. I'm hustling, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm working on so many projects at the moment. Like that is not a flex to me. Like no. that sounds really exhausting and like I've been burnt out multiple times. You know, I can get really easily overwhelmed just like working on like two projects, but then I find myself working on three. So I've actually pulled back from sharing certain things on Instagram because of that. I'm doing the work for myself, you know, it's not to be seen by the people or like validated. So that's something that I've had to unlearn. And yeah, like you were saying, you know, talking to younger people especially is really important because if it affects us being in our 20s mm-hmm. or anyone in their 30s plus, it can affect anybody, but especially when with developing minds yeah. and seeing just, like, one body type. Because, you know, even within, like, the quote-unquote body positivity movement, there's still a favoured kind of body within that. Where are the double chins? Where are the tummies? You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I think that's really dangerous. Yeah. That kind of thing where it it becomes like an, not an echo chamber, but just, like, like a homogenised view, especially of women's bodies. Yeah. For sure. And I guess, you know, it wasn't necessarily a conversation about bodies, but I remember when that kind of natural hair movement was starting to really take shape, the second wave of it about 10 or so years ago, there was certain natural hair within like, you know, the Afro diaspora that was considered super, you know, everyone's natural hair, you know, trust your, you know, love your crown, whatever. But there was some natural hair that was kind of looser and maybe a little bit wavier and curlier that was probably Mm. given all of the attention whereas the kind of thicker more coily hair was not and so that seems like it's the same kind of thing where even when you're trying to be part of this bigger movement that is supposed to be positive and kind of remove us from what we consider to be the beauty standards of western beauty standards or whatever there then is something else that comes and still excludes some people and it's yeah yeah it's hard to take on But, you know, I love seeing you out there. I love seeing your posts and your makeup looks and all of the cool stuff and seeing a familiar face on my feed um, as well. It's Yeah, it's beautiful. I really love when I see people doing their thing and knowing that they're just themselves in that as – they're just as – yeah, just themselves in that as they are in person and it's – yeah. Yeah. It's really special. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, thank you. Yeah, it's it's fun. Like I I, I had to – yeah, literally just have fun with it as yeah. opposed to taking it too serious or, like, putting too much pressure on myself and just seeing it as something that I can just express myself on and, like, yeah. So it's 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 good, but, yeah, got to use it safely. <laughs> yeah, got to use it safely, totally. Yeah. You'll, you'll be part of a conversation on Sunday afternoon as part of the Fringe Festival with your amazing mum, <laughs> Pala Bala, yeah. um, and Madison Connors about social media and the ways First Nations women's bodies have been depicted in the colonial context. Um, what have you had to learn about, you know, autonomy when it comes to mm. your experience as an Aboriginal woman? So I have been on, uh, I, I think it's been for the past two years of unlearning fat phobia, like mm. internalised fat phobia and, like, internalised, like, kind of colonised view of weight and appearance. And it's I'm not going to say, oh, I'm cured of it now because, you know, in the talk I mentioned how it's like an ongoing process and it's not a linear mm. 
process either. It's, you know, up and down, like, you know, I have my days, you know, where I can get my get, get in my head. And it's it's something that actually, like, on my, like, personal Instagram or whatever, like, I started posting kind of photos, you know, looking cute, but, like, you know, showing, like, my stretch marks and um, my belly and, you know, just, just, like, yeah, showing more skin because that, that moment for me, like, I needed to do that because... I have, I was just so sick of like having this internalized thought of, mm. you know, I'm too big. I've put on too much weight. Da 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 It was quite literally weighing me down mm. um, mentally, and so I wanted to put that out there. And like, I think especially talking to to Maddie, who's a mum and and who speaks about um, giving birth to two brothers. Like, you know, I'm not a mum, but it really resonated with me about how um, how we should look at our bodies and um, and cherish cherish our bodies, but also like it's not about like self love like every single day um, and and being so like obsessed um, with how you look. It's more about like I'm a kind person and I I'm a person who um, you know can give life. I can breastfeed. Um, or I can, you know, provide um, love to my family. I can provide love to myself, to my community. You know, it's looking at that and, and touching on what you said before as well about how, you know, w- without Instagram or without even without social media, with, you know, when it comes to um, getting rid of, like, external validation, it's like, what do you have there? And I think that that is a huge part of it as well for me. It's like just unlearning all of that um, and just coming into my own <clears throat> and discovering like what's actually important to me and, um, and kind of like the legacy I, like, I want to leave mm-hmm. as well, you know? So it's because, you know, I just think it's like, you know, so much, so many of us are like dieting or just like focusing on how we look. And I think, damn, like, you know, in 30 years or more, I'm going to look back in this and just feel like, wow, I wasted so much time. So it, it's really about that and um, re- redirecting the colonial gaze mm. too because it's like, you know, as Aboriginal women, we're either hypersexualized or we're demonized or um, seen as ugly and undesirable or, you know, just, just a number of things due to colonial impact. So, yeah, it, it's... It really is all about unlearning for me. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because, you know, as you said, it's the amount of time that it's is spent in your head, right? The amount of time that's spent thinking about all of these things. It's not necessarily only about the actions of, you know, what you might do to your body or dieting or whatever it might be. It's also the amount of time that is spent just mm. thinking about this and that emotional toll yeah. that that takes that could be spent doing things that make you feel happy and you know, yep. where you can flex all the amazing things about who you are. And that, yeah, that definitely resonates so much, Rosie. Yeah, no, definitely. So that's a talk that will be happening on Sunday afternoon. But before I let you go, yeah. I want to hear about Black to the Future. You said you've kind of just wrapped up. What's happening with the third iteration? So it's done. Um, it's online. I, I did a, a walkthrough on camera so that will be on the website on the FCAC website and yeah it's I can't believe it because you know we started at the start of the year and then 
went into lockdown and then went into lockdown again. Um, but then, you know, I, I was able to go in there on my own. Um, and obviously the amazing team there at Footscray, um, you know, finished it for me and, and helped me through that process and did all the lighting. So, yeah, it, it feels bittersweet because obviously I'd love to, you know, like every other year with like the concerts we had yeah. and all that. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of holding on to the fact that like we'll be able to do that um, hopefully soon again and, um, but yeah, it's online for everybody to see, which is good because I know a lot of people miss out anyway because of accessibility issues or living, you know, regional or whatever it may be. So it's online and I'm happy that it's able to reach more people this time. So I'm kind of looking at it as a, as a positive. It is a positive, and also for those of us like myself, I was saying to you when we were a bit when we were off air that like love that everything is open now, but it's also taking me a little yeah. while to get into my social yeah. habits. So it's overwhelming. I'm, I'm like, not mad, Rosie. Uh, I'm ready to like it's about it's about us being able to choose to stay in and not being forced I really think it's about like not wanting someone or authority to tell you well for me personally that's what it is I don't want to be told that I need to stay home right but it's not like I leave my house anyway so yeah (laughs) by choice exactly (laughs) exactly um so if people want to check out black to the future you can jump on the fcac website and their socials and stuff and there'll be lots of information there um and if you want to also hear rosie speak um alongside um her mom paula and maddie as well maddie connors jump on the fringe website you can sign up it's this Sunday afternoon, you can jump online and check out this um, really, really amazing talk. Rosie, thank you so much for coming on the show this thank morning. Thank you so much, Rosie. Great thank to you catch so up. Much. <laughs> yeah, so lovely to hear your voice and Dion. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Rosie. Rosie Kalina is a visual artist and proud Wamba Wamba and Gundajamara woman. She specialises in makeup artistry with a large Instagram following at Rosie Kalina and works in fashion, editorial and live events. Rosie challenges the notion of what it means to be an Aboriginal woman through fierce and decolonial imagery and by asserting herself as a sovereign woman. If you want to hear more from Rosie, jump on the Fringe website, like I said, and sign up for First Nations Bodies in Colonial Spaces as part of the Deadly Fringe Yarn series. Um, You could also find her on the socials, as I mentioned, and you can also jump on the FCAC website um, for Black to the Future. Iteration number three. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.